This morning we come to Mark chapter 11 as we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark and as you can see there in your bulletin the title of this sermon is All Show But No Fruit. Fake plants have become very popular. In the 1980s China built hundreds of factories to produce fake trees, fake flowers, and fake plants. And people have them everywhere now. They're popular in homes and in commercial offices and hotels, and they look nice all year round. They become popular because they don't need sunlight or water or pruning or soil. They're low maintenance as they just sit there in a flower pot or a vase all year long. And what fake plants are good at is collecting dust, right? Many of you have probably seen a fake plant that is full of dust. Maybe you have your own at home that is full of dust. You have to deal with that fake plant that looks all dusty. The amazing thing is all you have to do is clean off the outside with a dust rag or maybe wash them off with some water and they're back to looking good again. And while fake plants can look nice in a home or an office or a hotel, there is one thing that these plants will never do. They will never produce fruit. And as we'll see in our passage here this morning, Jesus is dealing with a Jewish people who are just like those fake plants. They're fruitless. They're fruitless. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't come in and attack the corruption of their businesses. He doesn't come in and attack the economy. He doesn't attack the injustices of the culture. He doesn't attack the Romans who are ruling over the Jews at this time. What Jesus does is something that most people don't think of when they want to fix a society. What Jesus does is he comes in and he goes after the heart of their worship. Jesus comes in and he attacks the temple. And so let's read our passage here this morning so we can understand the context of what is going on in Mark chapter 11. Follow along as I read Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Now, if you remember from last week, this is the Passion Week. This is what we call the Passion Week. The last week of the life of Christ before he goes to the cross. And and Jesus has been making his way to go to Jerusalem Because he needs to go and die as the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And as we saw last week, Jesus came to Bethany and then he went through the village, this little village called Bethpage. 
And he did this on Monday. This all happened on Monday. He made his way into Jerusalem on a donkey as the people were shouting Hosanna. It's often what we call Palm Sunday, but if you look at the chronology of all that's happened there, it's technically Monday. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he doesn't take a tour through the town. When he enters Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes straight to the temple, to the court of the Gentiles, the place where anyone could go. The Gentiles, the non-Jews and the foreigners could go. The Jews and the Gentiles could go and hang out there in the court of the Gentiles. But for the Gentiles, for those who were non-Jews, that was as far into the temple as they could go. There was also an inner courtyard in the temple known as the women's courtyard. The women's courtyard. And that was the furthest place inward that the Jewish women could go to make sacrifices and offerings. They couldn't go any further into the temple than that. They would go there and they would make their offerings there. But the Gentiles had to stay outside of the women's courtyard because they weren't allowed to go in any further. Then, beyond the women's courtyard, you had the court of the Israelites. The court of the Israelites, where the men could go, and they would hand their sacrifices over to the priests, and then they would stand there, and they would watch the priests make the sacrifices for them. Then you had the court of the priests, as you went a little further into the temple. You had the court of the priests, where only the priests could go, and that's where they made the sacrifices for the people. And then in the very center, you had the temple building. The temple building, where the menorah and the table of showbread and the altar of incense were. That's also where you had... A large canopy that went up. A large curtain that was there. In that inner part of the temple. This, this curtain that went up. And inside of that curtain was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. That was where only the high priest could go once a year. He could go inside that curtain into the Holy of Holies. But Jesus stays outside in the court of the Gentiles. What's he doing there? We saw last week, Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles, and as he's standing there, he's scoping the place out. He's watching and seeing all of the things that are going on there in Jerusalem, on the temple grounds, on the Passover week. People have come from all over Israel to come and celebrate and worship at this temple. And Jesus observes all that's going on there, and what he observes is, is that it's turned into a marketplace. The temple, which was made, designed, created to worship God, has turned into a marketplace with all kinds of buying and selling that's going on, and Jesus is disgusted with it. What was meant to be a place of worship had turned into a place of business. It was all show and no fruit. And so Jesus leaves later that day, and he heads back to Bethany on Monday. Monday night, he goes back to Bethany with the twelve. Tuesday morning comes, and Jesus heads back to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up here in our passage this morning. And so let's look at our passage. We're going to break it down into three parts. First, we're going to see fruitless religion depicted. Fruitless religion depicted. Second, we'll see fruitless religion displayed. And then third, we'll see fruitless religion denounced. So let's look at our first point here this morning. Fruitless religion depicted. Look at verse 12 and what it says there. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he, that is Jesus became hungry. The next day, this is Tuesday. Tuesday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Monday, and then he leaves and goes back to stay the, stay the night in Bethany, 
with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, most likely, and then he comes back on Tuesday morning. Bethany was about a two-mile trip from Jerusalem. And as was the custom of Jesus, he most likely was up early in the morning doing what? Praying. Because that's what Jesus did. He got up early in the morning and he would pray. And especially on this week, as Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him. He knew what was coming. Jesus knew by the end of the week, he would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and then be handed over to the Gentiles. And he knew that he would be mocked and he would be spit on and he would be beaten and then he would be killed. Jesus knew all of this. And so he needed to rely fully on the Father. And no doubt his prayer life was heightened at this point. He knows what's coming at the end of the week. And he needed strength from the Father to endure all of this. Jesus leaves Bethany with the twelve, though, early on Tuesday morning, and, and he makes his way back to Jerusalem. And as I mentioned last week, the village of Bethpage was most likely along the way going from Bethany over to Jerusalem. And so they most likely would have traveled through Bethpage. And what's interesting is that Bethpage means house of figs. That's what that city, that village there means. It means house of figs or house of unripe figs. And as Jesus is making his way with the twelve, it says, he became hungry. Why? Why did Jesus become hungry? Well, most likely because he got up early in the morning to pray, and then he left for Jerusalem without eating any breakfast. Remember, Jesus was fully God. Yes, he was fully God. We saw that last week, the deity of Christ, that he is fully God. But Jesus is also fully man. He's fully man. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is, of flesh and blood. Jesus shared in the flesh and blood. He took on flesh and became a man. He was fully God, and he's fully man. And the humanity of Christ is on display here. He gets hungry, just like you and I get hungry. Jesus became hungry. He needed some food to eat. Now, last week we saw his deity on display as he knew exactly where to go and find that young colt. Remember the young colt that was unridden? Jesus knew that there was one there in Bethpage, he didn't go and scope out the village to see if there was one. He told the two disciples, go into the village and you're going to find one there. How did he know that? Because he's God. It's his deity on display. But now we see his humanity on display. Jesus gets hungry. And so as he's walking along the road from Bethany to Jerusalem, most likely there near Bethpage, Verse 13 says, seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Jesus is walking along with the twelve, and he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. Now why is this important for us to know? Why is it important? Why does Mark write this out for us and tell us that there were leaves on this fig tree? Well, the way that fig trees, trees work is that they will produce fruit first, and then they will produce the leaves. Fig trees will produce fruit first, and then they will produce their leaves after that. This is in the early spring, sometime end of March, early April, which would be the time of the Passover. And it's during this time that the fig tree would produce little fruits on it. Just little ones, not fully grown figs, but little figs, little almond-sized figs that would be on it, and they would be edible for anyone who was hungry. 
And the fact that this fig tree had leaves on it at this point would have meant that there should also be what? Some fruit on it, right? That's how the fig tree works. It wouldn't have the full size figs. That doesn't happen till later in, in August to October. And that's why Mark says there, for it was not the season for figs. That's what he's talking about there. But it should have some small fruit on it. And the fact that there were leaves meant that there should have been some little fruit, some little almond-sized fruit that came before these leaves. But Jesus walks up to this fig tree and what does he find? Nothing but leaves. It was a hypocritical tree. He found no fruit on this tree. From the appearance, it should have at least had some small fruit on it, but there was none. A hypocritical tree. Now think about the disciples at this point. Just a day earlier, they saw the crowd welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem and hailing him as king as they're all shouting Hosanna as he's walking in on this donkey. These 12 are there and they're watching all of this happen. They're there with Jesus as he goes into the temple to have a look around to scope the place out. They leave with him and they go back to Bethany that night. And now they're walking back to Jerusalem And Jesus is concerned about a fig tree. A fig tree? Think about this. From their perspective, from these 12, there must have been a lot going on in their minds. And remember, they don't understand at this point that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to die. They don't get it. They don't comprehend it. They don't understand it. Jesus has already told them three times that he's going to Jerusalem to die, and they have no clue. They don't get it. It's not computing for them. And now Jesus walks up to this fig tree, not just because he was hungry, but also because he wanted to teach them a lesson. So what does he do to this fruitless fig tree? Look at what he says in verse 14. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now many people have have pondered about this. Why does Jesus say this? It looks like maybe Jesus became angry because the tree didn't have any fruit on it. It's what we call hangry in our house. (laughs) You're so hungry that you become angry. (laughs) But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is not angry. Jesus doesn't shout at the tree. There's no indication of anger anywhere here in Mark's account. And if you were to go over and read Matthew's account, there is zero indication that Jesus was angry at this point. The key to all of this, to what is going on here, is found at the end of verse 14. Look at what it says there. And his disciples were listening. His disciples were listening. Why does Jesus do this? It's another teaching moment for these guys. Remember, Jesus has been training up and teaching the disciples because they're going to be the ones when he ascends and goes back with the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, they are the ones who are commissioned to go out and preach the gospel. He's training them up. And he gives them a living parable. This is a living parable for these guys. Well, oftentimes, Jesus taught in parables, and he's now giving them a living parable, an illustration, a depiction, an analogy, as he teaches them a lesson from this fig tree. Jesus wanted his disciples to be listening because he was teaching them a lesson. Now, when Jesus cursed this fig tree, this curse here was a miracle. It was a miracle. When Jesus walked up to it, the fig tree was alive with leaves. They looked good. It was alive. 
But this announcement of Jesus, this curse on this fig tree, killed the fig tree on the spot. Killed it. It was dead. And Jesus says it will never produce fruit ever again. Jesus didn't poison it. Jesus didn't cut up, come up and, and cut the tree down. He just spoke to the tree and it died. It's dead. And his disciples wouldn't recognize this until the next day. They wouldn't recognize that the tree was dead until the next day. But this tree at this point is dead. It is cursed. No more fruit will ever be produced from this tree ever again. And what's interesting here about this miracle of cursing this fig tree is that all of the other miracles that Jesus has done up to this point are all miracles, listen to this, in the positive. They're all miracles in the positive. There are miracles to, to build up. There are miracles to heal. Jesus has healed blind men. He's healed those who were sick. He's cast out demons. Jesus has fed the hungry by miraculously providing food for them. Positive things, right? Those are all good things. Jesus has calmed storms. Jesus has even raised the dead. All positive miracles. But this miracle here was different. This was a different miracle. This wasn't a positive miracle. This was a negative miracle. It was a destructive miracle. So what's the point of a destructive miracle like this? Well, this was a miracle that was meant to be an illustration of what had happened to Judaism. Jesus is depicting the nature of Judaism and he uses this fruitless tree to illustrate it. The whole Jewish system had become like a tree with leaves but no fruit. It looked good on the outside. It looked good as you walked by it. But if you get down to the root, it was fruitless. It was worthless. There was nothing left to indicate that what was going on had any purpose or any meaning in Judaism. Fruitless worship. There were leaves on the exterior which should indicate that there was some fruit beneath, but the whole Jewish system had become corrupt and fruitless and therefore pointless. And Jesus illustrates this by cursing this fig tree. It was gone. No more fruit in that system. Gone. Dead. As one commentator says, the tree was a fitting symbol of Israel's failure to produce the spiritual fruit that it professed to have. This was an illustration of judgment. An illustration of judgment upon Israel for failing to produce the fruit that God had called them and chosen them for. They were called to produce fruit. But they failed. They were fruitless. They were corrupt. How do we know that the Jewish religion had become fruitless and corrupt? Well, this leads to our second point. Point number, fruit, point number two, fruitless religion displayed. Fruitless religion displayed. Look at verse 15 of what it says there. Verse 15 says, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Stop right there. Jesus didn't come and enter into Jerusalem and take a tour throughout the city. He didn't go to talk with the Romans and the Antonia Fortress, which would have been a tower there where the Roman guards were set up to watch over the whole operation and all that was going on there at the temple. These Roman guards were set up there in this fortress to make sure that the people were keeping the peace. What's interesting too is that was also the place where they kept the, the high priest's robes. They guarded them and protected them there. Why? 
because they knew the power of those priestly robes. And they didn't want that power to get out because they had all the power. They were Rome, the Romans. And they would be up in this tower there watching over all that was going on down below in the temple. And Jesus doesn't go and confront those Romans there in the tower. Where does Jesus go? To the temple. Jesus goes directly to the temple. Why? Because the temple was to be the center of worship. It's the center of worship. But the temple was far from being a place of worship. The side of the temple was more like a marketplace, like a commercial center, than it was a place of worship. And anyone who would have gone to the temple would have seen all the things that were going on there. The sights and the sounds of the people coming and going, buying and selling, seemed more like a fairground than it did a place of worship. It was full of the sounds of the people and the smells of the animals as people came to purchase their sacrifices so that they didn't have to make the trip with one of their own animal sacrifices. Uh, We'll just purchase one when we get there. And when Jesus saw this going on, look at what he does in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So Mark gives us a glimpse of what is going on here on the temple grounds. First, there were those who were buying and selling in the temple. Buying and selling. Obviously, the buyers were those who came to worship and to make a sacrifice for the Passover. But the sellers were those who were authorized by the high priest in order to make, listen to this, a profit. Authorized by the high priest to make a profit. Annas and Caiaphas were both high priests who were in charge of this entire operation, and they were making a lot of money off of it. A lot of money. And anyone who needed to purchase a sacrifice was able to do so from those who were there selling. You also had priests who were there, and their job was to make sure that any sacrifice that someone brought to the temple was good enough. So if you brought your own sacrifice from your home... You brought it with you all the way to Jerusalem to go and sacrifice this animal because it was your best. The priest would stand there and they would look at that and they were the ones who would judge whether it was good enough or not. And if it wasn't deemed good enough, then you'd have to go and buy an animal from one of the vendors who was set up there in the court of the Gentiles. And of course, all of their animals were acceptable, right? Why were they set up? To make a profit. And as you would go there to buy this animal sacrifice, you would buy it and you would pay for it, but of course it wasn't for the going rate. They would charge ten times the price of what a normal sacrifice would cost. There are massive amounts of animals around there. This was a large operation that's going on there on the Temple Mount. The historian Josephus comments on one Passover that there were over 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed. That's a massive operation that's going on there on the Temple Mount. So you have these buyers and these sellers, animals everywhere marketplace. Then you had the tables of the money changers. The tables of the money changers. Every Jewish man who was 20 years old and over had to pay the temple tax, which was half a shekel. When they came to the temple, they would have to pay this temple tax, half a shekel. But if you made the trip and all you had was Greek or Roman coinage, Well, that coinage wasn't acceptable. They didn't take Greek or 
Roman coinage at the temple. You could only pay with Jewish coinage, which were silver coins from Tyre. These were Tyrian coinage. They were the only acceptable coinage there in the temple. And so, if you had your Greek or Roman coinage, when you would come there, you would go to the table of the money changers. And you would have to exchange your money. But of course, it wasn't a one-to-one exchange. No, we, we wouldn't do that. There was a fee for the exchange. Around 10 to 12 percent. A 10 to 12 percent markup. Some figures show as high as a 25 percent fee for the exchange. And these money changers would sit there cross-legged on the pavement or on little stools behind their tables. Low to the ground. And they would sit there behind their little tables. And this was prime time for them. This is prime time. People are coming from all over to come to Jerusalem. These guys are making lots of money and their tables would have been stacked full of coins. Then you also had those who were selling doves. Notice Mark tells us that. Those who were selling doves. These were men who would sit on stools behind their cages of doves or pigeons. And they would profit off of the poor. They were there to profit off off of the poor. Because a poor person could not afford an animal. And therefore God said back in Leviticus 12.8 that if you could not provide for yourself an animal, he said an acceptable sacrifice would be two doves or two pigeons. But as one commentator says, some estimate the markup was 16 times the normal price so that two pigeons, which normally sold for 25 cents, would now cost the impoverished person $4. You see the corruption that's going on there? The corruption and the false worship of God that is going on there at the temple? So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Jesus comes in and he's fed up. Yeah, he's angry. And he comes in and he drives out those who were buying and selling. Because both of them were guilty of acting in an evil manner. Both those who were buying and selling. Both false worshipers. And he overturns the tables of the money changers as they are robbing the people. He overturns the seats of the dove sellers who are profiting off of the poor. Now listen, this this was not some kind of isolated incident in the corner of the temple grounds. It's not as if Jesus just goes into this massive temple grounds, the court of the Gentiles, and goes over to one small corner of it and starts turning over tables. Jesus is going through the entire court of the Gentiles, and he's causing a scene, and he's just ripping the place up. He didn't walk by a table and just kick over a a stack of coins. (laughs) He threw over the entire table. Jesus was not happy with what they had done to the temple. Is he angry? Oh yeah, he's angry. This is righteous anger. Righteous anger for what they had done to the temple. And Jesus comes in and he turns the temple grounds into a complete mess. And think about this. This was a well-organized business that the high priest had set up so that the people could come to the temple with their so-called worship. This was well-organized. And Jesus comes in and he just destroys, just messes up their whole operation. You can picture this. There's just coins flying everywhere. Doves and pigeons are flying out of their cages. 
Tables are turned over. Chairs are flipped over on their side. And Jesus comes in and he just messes this place up. And the amazing thing is Jesus is able to go through this large area in the court of the Gentiles and rip this place up like a tornado just went off in the temple. And no one was able to stop him. No one. No one stopped him. Mark gives us another detail about what Jesus did. Look at verse 16. It says, He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now what's, what's this verse talking about here? Well, the, the temple would become a, a shortcut for those who were selling merchandise to walk through and get into the city. So as they were outside of the city, in order to get into the city, there was a shortcut that they could take through the temple grounds. They would come down the Mount of Olives in order to get there into the city. And normally they would have to walk around the temple, but they discovered that there was a shortcut going right through the temple grounds, right through the court of the Gentiles there. And these people come walking through with all of their merchandise, taking a shortcut through the temple grounds. These people had no intentions of staying there for worship, which is what they were to do in the temple grounds. They were just using the courts as a shortcut, which, by the way, at one point was deemed not permissible to do this. It was not permissible for anyone to walk across the temple grounds as a shortcut with their merchandise. But, ah, uh, we'll just let that go. You can, you can come through here. There was zero reverence for God. Zero reverence for what was supposed to take place there at the temple. None. It was gone. It was established and set up to be a place of worship but it had become a shortcut so that they could get to where they needed to go quicker. And the amazing thing is, what Mark tells us in verse 16 is that Jesus stopped all of this traffic from coming through the temple. This is amazing. Jesus goes and he halts all of it. He stops all of it and says, no, you're not going on this shortcut. You're not coming through the temple grounds. Think about the power and the authority that he put on display there on the temple grounds. As he just destroys these vendors' operations in the temple, and then he cuts off the people from using it as a shortcut. Why does he do all of this? Because they had turned the temple into a place of business instead of a place of worship. Their so-called worship was just exterior works. It was all works righteousness. And as they're there on the temple grounds, their fruitless worship was on display for all to see. And Jesus comes in and he says he will have none of it. Not in his house. This is not how you are to treat my father's house. It was one big display of fruitless religion that was going on there. It was all show, but no fruit. And while, of course, there were people who were upset with Jesus for doing this, the scribes and the priests, the Pharisees, they were all upset with Jesus. But there were a lot of people who were attracted to Jesus because they wanted to hear what he had to say. This is great power on display. And they want to listen to what Jesus has to say. Which leads to our third point. Point number three. Fruitless religion denounced. Fruitless religion denounced. Look at verse 17 and what it says there. And he began to teach and say to them. Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. Jesus begins to teach the people in the midst of all of this. 
In the midst of all that's going on, as he has just come in and destroyed the temple, he has stopped traffic from going through the temple, and then they gather around, and he has time to teach them. And they're attracted to him. They're amazed by his teaching. And he begins to teach these people. He obviously got their attention, right? (laughs) And the people come up and they see what he had to say. And what did he tell them? Notice he starts off and he says, Is it not written? Is it not written? What is Jesus pointing to here? What is he pointing to? What are the written documents that he's referring to here? The Old Testament. Is it not written in the Old Testament, in the sacred scriptures that you guys know? You're all Jews. You know this. You know the Old Testament. And he's quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7, which says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them a joyful and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And the Jews would have known this verse. They knew their Old Testament scriptures. They couldn't argue with it. You're right, Jesus. It does say that. In our scriptures. But they had taken God's house, the temple, and they had completely decimated it. It was no longer a house of prayer. It was no longer a place of worship. It was a place of business and fruitless religion. Notice what Jesus says there. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. For all the nations. Now this doesn't mean that the Jews are supposed to come and pray for the nations. That's not what he's talking about here. This means that the temple was supposed to be a place where the nations, the Gentiles, could come and worship God too. In fact, they even had a court there that was called the court of the Gentiles. Where the Gentiles were welcome to come and worship God at the temple. Do you think that when the Gentiles got there, that they were encouraged to worship God there? Of course not. Of course they weren't. One commentator says, For convenience of the Jewish worshipers, this part, the only place where Gentiles were permitted, had been turned into a common market where barter and greed ruled. It defeated the very purpose of the temple for the Gentiles. Listen, Israel had been tasked with being a light unto the nations. That's why God chose them. To be a light unto the nations. And God established them to be a light unto the nations. Their job was to point the nations to God. To the one true God. And the temple was to be used as a part of that. Let me show you this. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. If you remember, David had a desire to build the temple. He wanted to build the temple, but God told him, nope, you don't get to build the temple. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. And so Solomon, King Solomon, built his temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, look at what it says in verse 27. After he has finished building the temple, he says this in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. What is that house? The temple. Verse 28. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward this place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. 
here, here in heaven, your dwelling place, here and forgive. Solomon knew that this temple was to be a house of prayer. It was to be a house of worship. That's why God gave him the mission to build the temple. To be a place of worship. But then Solomon goes on. Look at what he says over in verse 41. Look at verse 41. He says, also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you and do your people Israel as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. What was the temple supposed to be? A place where the nations could come to worship God. It was a place where the light of the truth would go from. To all of the nations. And Solomon recognizes this. And he says, this is the purpose of the temple. So that the nations could hear about God. What did the Jews turn the temple into? Go back to Mark chapter 11. Look at verse 17, what Jesus says. He says, but you have made it a robber's den. You have made it a robber's den. And Jesus here is quoting the judgment and the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, which says this, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. God saw everything that was going on there at the temple grounds. God saw the hearts of the people. And it was all false and fake worship. It was all fruitless religion. And he says, you have made it a den of robbers. Now the den was the place where the robbers used to hide out after they had committed their crimes. But the irony in all of this is that these robbers didn't need to hide out. They just did it in open daylight. Right there on the temple grounds. Well, The chief priests and the scribes are not happy about Jesus teaching this to the people Look what it says in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. The people are amazed. They're astonished at what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was standing up to this fruitless religion and he's teaching them the truth. And they are amazed at this. But the chief priests and the scribes Wanted him dead. Get rid of this guy. How dare he come in and challenge us? Why did they want him dead? Because he was denouncing their fruitless religion. They had taken God's temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer and worship, and they had turned it into a marketplace for their own religion. And you know there's a lot of churches like this today. A lot of churches like this today. Full of business and fruitless religion. Full of leaders who are there to put on their own show and to gain a crowd for themselves. Their own following. They're fruitless leaders. And they attract fruitless followers who are there that just going through the motions. Uh, sure, they look good on the outside, but inside they are fruitless trees. Spurgeon said the great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all bear leaves, but they produce no fruit. 
And listen, this is the state of our churches today. This is the state of churches in America today. All show and no fruit. They have perverted God's church when God's church is to be a witness to the nations of who God is. The leaders of God's church have been given the task of making His church a place of worship. But many have turned it into a rock concert and a motivational speech. God's church is supposed to be a place of prayer and worship. That's what we come to do. To pray and to worship. It's supposed to be a place of complete devotion and dedication to God and worship for who He is. And so what happens to these places who have turned God's church into a place of fruitless religion? Look over at verse 19. Look what it says there in verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. In verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Obviously, they didn't know the drastic change when Jesus cursed the tree the day before. And when they walked back to Bethany on Tuesday evening, after Jesus has destroyed the temple, it was dark. He was there all day. (laughs) He was teaching them. After he destroyed it, he was teaching them all day. And he walks back, and it's dark, so they don't see the tree. But the next day, they come and they walk by the tree, and they notice, Peter notices, hey, there's the tree that Jesus cursed. And it withered. It was dead. It was lifeless. No more green leaves. No more show. It was gone. And that is what God will do with fruitless religion and fruitless churches. And even fruitless so-called Christians. God will destroy them. They will die. That cursed fig tree was an illustration of what happens when there is no more fruit. Sure, it may look good on the outside. It may even look good for a time. But they will be judged. And you know where judgment starts with God? Judgment doesn't start outside. Judgment doesn't start with the world. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Listen, is God's judgment upon you this morning? If Jesus is not Lord of your life, if Jesus is not your Savior, God's judgment is upon you. His wrath abides upon you. And that should terrify you. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But listen, God provided a way for you to be saved from His wrath. And His name is Jesus. His only Son who came into Jerusalem on that Passion Week to go to a cross and die for the sins of the world. And He calls you to come to Him today in repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and God's wrath will no longer abide upon you. But you can have eternal life with Him forever. That's the good news. The bad news is, yes, God's wrath abides upon those who do not believe in Him. But the good news is, He provided a way. 
for you to have eternal life with him so that his wrath will no longer abide upon you. Come to Jesus today in repentance and faith and put your trust in him alone. What do we learn from this account this morning? God will judge those who call themselves churches but don't produce any fruit. God will judge them. Listen, church. The church is to be a place of worship. Not fruitless motions. Church is not a checkbox for you to fill in every week. Don't just mark off church as if you've been there, done that. Glad I went. Church should be the place where you long to come to, where you desire to come and worship with brothers and sisters. Because that's what He's called us to do. The church is to be a place of worship of our God. And we come to church to give worship to Him because that's what He expects of us every week, right? He expects worship of us as His children every week, every day, every hour, every minute. God expects worship from us. And our heart should be to give worship and praise to Him. We come here to worship God. We come here to pray to God. We come here to lift our hearts in praise and adoration for who He is and what He has done to save wretched sinners like us. Right? Listen, God is serious about His church. And God is serious about our worship. May we be worshipers of our God. Let's pray. Father, this is a a heavy passage for us, but it's such an important passage for us to know, to see your heart for your church. Father, I pray that you would guard us against the temptations of the world, the temptations of the culture, who do not love you, who do not desire you. The world hates you. The world despises you. But Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us as your children. What we are to do as your people. And not in just what we are to do, but how we are to worship you. You tell us that in your word. Father, I pray that you would take that, that truth in your word, and plant it deep in our hearts that we would know and realize and recognize how important it is for us to gather every week to give worship to you because that is what you desire. That is what you command of us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church who would never be swayed by the ways of the world. I pray that you would guard us, that you would protect us, that you would keep us on the straight and narrow path. That we would be a church who would be a light in this world, proclaiming the truth of your word, the gospel that has saved us. And that we would bring glory and honor to your name. 
Father, we thank you for the lessons that we have learned here this morning. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who is going through the motions. Oh God, I pray that you would change their hearts. I pray that you would awaken their hearts. I pray that you would help them to realize and understand what it is that we are doing here this morning. That our desire is for you to exalt Christ here this morning. That is why we sang what we sang this morning, to give praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ and to His name alone. He is our Lord, He is our Savior, He is our Master, and we worship you as our God. Father, protect us. Father, keep us as a church. And may we be fixed upon you and upon your word always. For your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.